1: Well, let's open in a word of prayer, shall we? Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who commands not just the clocks but the sun the moon, who sets an example for us in the way that you display your emotions. Thank you, dear Lord, for showing us how we can conform our feelings with our faith and inform them by your word, who guides us. And we ask your blessing in Jesus' name, amen. Long and difficult chapter 10, Unforgiveness and Bitterness. Start with a question. Don't answer it out loud or answer it to yourself. We'll take a look at it afterward. If somebody sins against you, and they neither confess, repent, nor ask for forgiveness should you forgive them." Think about that. Opening with a quote from Borgman, there is a lot of discomfort in what the Bible says about forgiveness. But if we let the Bible be a hammer when it's supposed to be a hammer, and a healing balm when it's supposed to be a healing balm, then our hearts will be broken and healed according to the divine wisdom, rather than our own sense of emotional convenience. A balm is a lotion for some of you, you're younger. Forgiveness is tough. Anyone who has not struggled with forgiveness is a hermit or not entirely honest. Forgiveness is an ever-present issue as long as we live with people. Jesus considered forgiveness of such prime importance that he set an unforgettable example of it from the cross. And we're going to see this scripture verse a number of times this morning Luke 23 34. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. We all want to think of ourselves as forgiving people, but the risk of self deception is high. Jeremiah says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Some people will say that unforgiveness is an act, not an emotion. Well, although forgiveness is an act, it is never just an act. We've established that our emotions, represent our values and evaluations, and they drive our conduct. There is an emotional element to forgiveness. Emotional barriers then often prevent us from forgiving others. Borgman says the stink crop of unforgiveness is bitterness, which is an emotion as well. Is there any bitterness in your life toward another person? If there is, bitterness is the fruit, but unforgiveness is the root. So honest self-evaluation is the place we need to start if we are to put to death the ungodly emotions related to unforgiveness and bitterness. Once again, our three-step process, right of mortifying our ungodly emotions. And step one is honest self-evaluation. Number two, confession and repentance, both one and two done with the assistance and in the presence of other, the others. And step three, put off, put on, conforming your emotions by studying God's word insofar as how to put off ungodly responses and put on the truth of God's word to cultivate godly emotions. Romans 12.3, and we read this last week, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Failure to deal with forgiveness produces bitterness, and in Hebrews 12:15 we are warned: "See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no." Root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. The power of unforgiveness is destructive. Now, we are going to take a look at biblical thinking about forgiveness through a powerful parable. So, get your Bibles or your apps ready for the parable in Matthew 18, starting In verse 23, and I will join you there shortly. Matthew 18, 23, this would be the parable of the unjust servant. But before we get there, the pattern for mortifying ungodly emotions starts with biblical thinking. The Lord's parable in Matthew 18 is a great place to start because it responds to Peter's question about forgiveness. Matthew 18, 21, Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And how often do I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, this question comes in the context of community relationships and sins within the church. And that would be the previous verses 15 to 20. It's a natural question. And Peter is wondering, what's the limit? Now, the rabbinic view held that one might forgive three times, but come the fourth time, there is no forgiveness. But Peter, feeling magnanimous, suggests seven times. Right? But Jesus stuns Peter, saying, I do not save you seven times, but 70 times seven. It's not a math problem. Jesus is telling us that the way of discipleship is the way of forgiveness. Forgiveness marks those who follow Jesus, and here's why. He tells a parable about the seriousness of forgiveness. The parable unfolds in three acts and reveals that the elect of God have been forgiven far more than they will ever forgive. That's really the takeaway of this whole chapter. You've been forgiven far more than you will ever have to forgive. Therefore, forgiveness from the heart is the true indication that we have forgiven or received God's forgiveness, and we cherish it. Matthew 18, 23, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that they had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So that's the first act. So a day of reckoning had come when the books were opened and accounts were settled. The slaves who were to appear before the master were perhaps those who had leased property from the farm. One particular slave owned an incalculable amount and had to be brought before the master. The amount is so astronomical in the financial realm that it is unbelievable. But it is an accurate reflection of the magnitude of our sin against God. The point is, the man had no way to pay it back. Now, according to the custom of that day, the master sells the servant, the servant's wife and children, and all the servant's assets. It's kind of like Monopoly, you know? Your friend bankrupts you, you're selling the green buildings and the red buildings and the cards you have in front of you and you turn it over and you're bankrupt. Well, of course, they'll send you to jail But in this case, they do. The primary point here is that the man had no way to cover his liabilities. And in absolute desperation, the servant falls down on the ground and asks for patience and then promises the impossible. Well, the master is moved with compassion and he acts graciously. Now, the master's compassion reflects God's character. The master shows unbelievable mercy. He cancels the debt in its entirety, and it's an apt portrayal of the greatness of grace. Act 2, starting in verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Now this scene is designed to elicit an emotional response from the hearers, even to this day. It also reveals and contrasts the emotional expressions of the parties involved. The first servant should have been overwhelmed by the mercy and patience shown him, Instead, he becomes bitter and looks for a fellow servant who owed him a mere pittance compared to what he had owed and had been forgiven. Upon seeing his debtor, he meted out the same penalty from which he had just been released. The words that the servant's peer uses are almost identical to the words he himself had used to elicit mercy from the master. Please forgive me, have patience, and I will pay you back. But it leaves that guy unmoved. No, I'm throwing you in jail. Now the scene is disturbing. The servant sends his peer to the torturers without one shred of mercy. The one who had received mercy now displays no understanding of what had been done for him. Other servants who see it now are deeply disturbed and react by reporting it to the master. Jesus is setting up his audience just like Nathan set up King David, exactly the same way. The parable has us, as well as the original audience, shaking our heads in disgust and unbelief. Now the third act, verse 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is high drama. What the master had done to the servant should have been so valued by that servant that he in turn acted the same way and showed mercy. The meaning of the parable is that we are to act toward others as God has acted toward us. But the scene is not over. The master in the parable experiences righteous anger because the servant, in essence, negated the master's mercy by demanding justice from another. Borgman says mercy uninvested produced righteous anger in the master, mercy uninvested. The master showed the first guy mercy, but the first guy didn't invest it. Basically, learn or get rich because of that lesson, didn't invest it in his heart and had no mercy on his fellow servant. This is also what we're talking about when the Bible talks to us about talents. When we invest our talents and we don't bring it full-fold, tenfold, we don't invest it. This is just as much as a talent not being invested and returning if we're not investing the mercy that God's shown us toward others. And the master turns over the servant to the torturers until everything is paid. The language implies eternal punishment. By demanding justice, the servant cuts himself off from mercy. And so the lesson of the parable follows. Jesus gives his listeners, including us, the prophetic, thou art the man. He says, likewise, my heavenly father will do to you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Here are the thick parts of the chapter. Forgive from the heart. There are two things we must not do with this parable. First, we must not minimize this text and explain it away because we believe in eternal security. What Borgman is saying there is, yes, we're elect. And sometimes our Reformed theology has us minimizing the text because we're going to heaven. We've been saved. We'll always be saved. But don't minimize this text. Be mindful of your ability to forgive from the heart because there are some warnings, and we'll get to those warnings here shortly. We also must not miss the emotional element of forgiveness, which our Lord specifically refers to when he says forgive your brother from the heart. We are going to quote Fanny Crosby, who has written many a gospel hymn. The name of the song is To God Be the Glory. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. This parable also emphasizes a serious threat. There is boundless grace to forgive sin and eternal wrath for those who would spurn that grace through unforgiveness. And here's one of the warnings. Jesus says, for, so, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses, Matthew six fourteen. One red star note here. In order for us to think biblically about forgiveness, we must truly believe the threats against unforgiveness, the threats of the word of God. But why is forgiveness so hard? Why is it so hard to forgive from the heart? Why is the emotional element so difficult to master? We read the parable. We see the importance of forgiveness, and yet there is often a struggle to forgive others. If a person is unforgiving, perhaps they have never truly embraced the forgiveness of God for their sins, just like the servant. If people cannot forgive, they may never have experienced the saving mercy of God and Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. We are talking about people who struggle emotionally to forgive. The pain, the wounds, the hurt can be so great that there is an emotional barrier. Just when we think we have forgiven an offender... A flood of emotions overwhelms us and we struggle afresh. And there are other reasons. Sometimes we may erroneously think our case is special. Oh no, but they really hurt me. What the other person did to me is uniquely bad. Well, for others, uh, forgiveness is easier than forgiveness. We might be afraid that if we forgive, the injury done to us will be forgotten or minimized. We may not forgive because we want to maintain an advantage over that other person. And the pain caused from the sin can be so great that there is an emotional blockade. Recalling the sin brings back an avalanche of hurt. Just when we think we have forgiven, a flood of emotions overwhelms us, causing us to doubt the truthfulness of our own words. And now the hard stuff. Thinking biblically about Forgiveness and cutting the root of bitterness. And here is what biblical forgiveness is and is not, according to this chapter. Forgiveness it does not mean that we treat evil deeds as if they were good. The true biblical forgiveness requires that sin be called sin and nothing else. Forgiveness is not pretending that what happened to me was somehow not damaging. Forgiveness does not mean there cannot be righteous anger at the wrong done and pain caused by the sins of others. Forgiveness does not mean there are not painful consequences for those sins. If sin requires the involvement of law enforcement and the courts, Forgiveness does not mean erasing the legal consequences. Forgiveness is freely letting go of the offense and not expecting penance or payment or getting even. Forgiveness is not counting the sin against the offender anymore. Psalm 130 verse 4 and Micah 719. Forgiveness is not bringing up the offense as a point of contention, controversy, or anger. Forgiveness is not bringing up the offense as a point of contention, controversy, or anger. Anytime there's an argument that begins with something that happened in the past, you know there has not been biblical forgiveness. I will try to briefly explain a scenario that happened to me years ago. Years ago during my first marriage, we had friends who had been going through a bout of infidelity, and the husband cheated on the wife. Now, I wasn't saved at this point. My wife and I truly had a rocky relationship. Mm, These two people, claim Christ as their Savior, or at least the wife did. Their discussion of the incident, they said, or at least the wife said, that she had forgiven her husband, and they were working with counseling to move on. And I had become pretty friendly with the husband. We'd gone out and played some pickup basketball back in the day together, and There were a few times we hung out, but he was frequently being paged and making phone calls. Turns out uh, his wife's condition of forgiveness was that he continued to let him know where he's going and who he's with whenever he changes locations or times. That is not forgiving somebody. I can understand the hurt. Many of us have been there. But tethering somebody in order to establish trust in them means you don't really trust God and you really haven't forgiven him from the heart. But that's a very hurtful situation. But the response is also not biblical. Forgiveness recognizes that God has forgiven the offender and has shown mercy and that Christ has paid the penalty for his or her sin. And now we do with that sin what God has already done. Ephesians 4:32: "Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you." Forgiveness does not look the same, though, when the offender has not repented, So we're going back to the question I asked to open up this sermon or message. Luke 17:3 through4. sometimes is used in confusing people, but let's start with that. Be on your guard if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him, and if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. But we always have an obligation to release all offenders from their debts before God. We go back to that verse we used earlier. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. Father, forgive them, for they, not, they do not know what they are doing. Let me ask you something. If somebody, if they didn't know what they were doing, did they know enough to go and ask for forgiveness and repent of their sin? No. If they didn't know what they were doing, they didn't know they had to repent for anything. What did Jesus do? Well, he I said, well, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Isn't Jesus God? Did Jesus ask God to forgive them, and did God the Father say, no? Has God ever said no because Jesus asked outside the will of his own Father? No. Jesus forgave those who didn't even know enough that they sinned against Jesus and asked for repentance and asked for mercy and asked for forgiveness. This means we do not hang on to offenses. We do not harbor ill feelings, anger, or bitterness. However, if the offender does not repent, then forgiveness is not explicitly expressed and reconciliation does not occur. What does that mean? If they didn't ask for, if somebody sins against you and they didn't ask for your forgiveness, you forgive them as your his, your father has forgiven you. It doesn't mean that you have a good relationship with this person because they didn't expressly ask for forgiveness, and so there cannot be any reconciliation. You can't verbalize to them, "I forgive you." That's part of the reconciliation process, and that's very important. Well. What happens to them? Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, Romans twelve nineteen. This last point is very important. Some teach you do not forgive until the offender asks for forgiveness and repents. However, in the court of heaven, through prayer. We can forgive people of their sins against us. I believe this is necessary if we are to be free of an unforgiving spirit and bitterness. Nevertheless, there is incompleteness in the process and no reconciliation until the offender seeks forgiveness. This very chapter we were presenting to a group that Kay and I led in a previous church, a college and career group. And two of the members of that group were children of stalwart family, stalwart family in the church that so was a foundational family for this church. Christian couple with Christian children, and two of those Christian children in their 20s, or late teens, were in our group. And the son, point blank, said, we were taught we don't have to forgive somebody unless they ask for forgiveness. Christian family homeschooled their kids. How to break the emotional barrier? Step 1, take the warnings seriously, the biblical warnings. The process for mortifying unforgiveness and bitterness begins by taking seriously the threats of our loving Lord against your unforgiving heart. Matthew 6:14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, but if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Matthew 18:35. Five. My Heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Have you noticed the word heart in here? Just checking. The risk of an unforgiving spirit is the loss of heaven. You may not be saved. People who will not forgive will not be forgiven. Number two, keep the scales of sin in perspective. Recognize a biblical truth that comes straight from the parable, and that is all of God's people have been forgiven far more than we will ever be asked to forgive. I think that was the main source of contentment, joy, and relief that was put into my head and heart when I was saved. Although now I can explain it. Then I didn't know what exactly it was. It was that, and I've explained it as a load taken off my shoulders. Like I was a helium balloon that had a brick on top and somebody took the brick off and went,
0: (laughs) whee! What
1: was it? I was forgiven. That was imputed to me. Now I can explain it. Forgiveness from the heart is the true indication that we have received God's forgiveness. Uh, there's a quote directly from Borgman. When we breathe in the air of the cross and the Father's love and wiping away our sins, the last thing in the world we will do is look for the person who owes us a hundred bucks. <laughs> And the third step, or how to break the emotional barrier, embracing God's sovereignty over our lives and even the pain caused by others can liberate us from bitterness and vengefulness. What does this mean? Let God worry about it in two ways, his sovereignty and his justice. Number one, embracing God's sovereignty over our lives can liberate us. And Joseph modeled, us, modeled this for us in Genesis 50:20. As for you, you meant evil against me, But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Uh, Essentially, uh, a scripture that was uh, very instrumental even recently. I have been up here and I have uh, said things that uh, are are transparent. I've been uh, honest about certain emotional failings of my own. And here's another one. Uh, Not too, fairly recently, um, I... um, had harbored feelings of revenge in an animated way um, against a former employer, and uh, I actually frequently, but not often, but occasionally, I would uh, entertain an, a scenario by which I uh, would have confronted these people, and um, you know, kind of jumped out like Joseph did from behind. Ha ha! It's me. Remember me? Remember, you fired me after five days on the job? Long story, I'll tell you it later. But, but you've got to trust God's sovereignty because he says in eight twenty-eight Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And also, when it comes to his justice, consider that God's justice will be satisfied. If those who have sinned against us are in Christ, If you're a believer, and you've sinned against me, then I have to realize your sin has been dealt with at the cross. If you're an unbeliever, and you sinned against me, God will still deal in justice through your eternal punishment. When we are the other, his justice will be satisfied. So either on the cross or in hell, All sin will be dealt with by God, and we can leave the ones who have hurt us with him. In conclusion, these truths empower us to forgive from the heart and help shrink the roots of bitterness. Forgiveness or unforgiveness is a matter of unbelief, and forgiveness is a matter of faith. Unforgiveness is unbelief in the gracious forgiveness of God toward us in Christ. Unforgiveness is unbelief in his power to provide us with the necessary grace to forgive. Forgiveness flows to others because we cherish by faith what God has done for us. It is supported by faith in the sovereignty of God and is secured by faith in the justice of God. Heavenly Father, thank you for preaching to me through this chapter and through to us as well please forgive our unforgiveness and our bitterness Holy Spirit rooted out because of the tremendous realization we have of what we've been forgiven and help us to let go of those who owe us a hundred bucks in Jesus name amen